in a story. So, over these four weeks, we're looking at this thing in a story. As I introduced it last week, I said the trouble with the new year is we all set New Year's resolutions January the 1st, and by January the 7th, they're beginning to crumble, or they've crumbled altogether, and by the beginning of February, we can't remember what they are at all. Or we set superficial resolutions that don't make much difference to our lives. So the question is, how do we move on from where we are as people to where we want to be as people? We're born to keep growing. We're born to keep learning. So uh, we began looking at the book of Romans, uh, which we just read a little bit from, and uh, this whole thing last week. And I'm not really going to repeat what we talked about last week. But what I said was this, that when we read text, it can be any text, and particularly the Bible, Often, we get so up close to it that we can't see the wood for the trees. There's this picture of this guy who's staring straight at one tree in depth. But his view of the tree completely obliterates anything else. He can't see a thing. He's actually blinded by his over-attention to tiny detail. Now, I grew up in churches, and I realized this. There's this thing called exposition. You've probably heard of it. And uh, what we can so often end up doing is we look at a verse and a word in Greek, and we spend so much time looking at that, we lose the context. Like if someone sends you a postcard from their holiday, and you spend so much time analyzing why they said and instead of not together or it or two. You spend so much time analysing it that you lose uh, the context altogether. Our task is always to try to see the wood, not just the trees. And that's a great principle for uh, the whole of life. And last week I said that uh, Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, there's this thing called the new perspective on Paul, which isn't really new at all. I said it began about, well, it began in the 1970s, and then a guy called James Dunn in the 1980s actually coined the term a scholar, Scottish scholar, uh, studying in America, a professor in America, coined this term, new perspective on Paul, and subsequently N.T. Wright has driven that thing forward, lots of other people, but what they're really doing is just saying, we've got to try to understand Paul, who wrote this letter, as a first century Jewish Roman citizen, not as an 18th, 19th, or 20th century Western European theologian. We've got to allow him to speak out of that context, which means we've got to look at the woods and not just the trees. We've got to try and see the big thing that he's talking about. And of course, we need to do this, not just in terms of studying Romans or the Bible, but the whole of life. There's this story in the Old Testament that I'm sure you know. And it's about when the children of Israel, not yet called the Israelites, were in the wilderness the wilderness, the desert, having escaped Egypt where they'd been slaves for 400 years. And Moses, this great hero of theirs, leads them to freedom. As you, as you know, they escape uh, from uh, the Pharaoh and uh, he leads them to freedom. But they wander around in this desert because they don't have sat-nav, you know, and they, they kind of wander all over the place instead of heading in a straight line. And in the desert, they are f- fed, miraculously fed, with this uh, bread, manna, that falls from uh, the sky. And there's all sorts of theories as to why that was and how that happened. But this manna falls from the sky, this bread, and it keeps them alive for a little bit of the journey. Um, And they'd be, well, they'd die without it. 
And every day this bread is given, but there's only enough manna, bread, for the day. There's never, they never get two days supply. They don't get a week's supply. They don't get enough to put in their deep freeze. Every day they're dependent on fresh bread, fresh manna. It's like that for us, isn't it? It's like that for you. I know it's like that for you. Stuff I've known goes, goes stale on me. I have to keep working at it. I have to keep moving. I have to keep growing. So our inner story, and we're going to come on to talk a fair bit about that in a minute, our inner story can only stay live and stay relevant if we keep moving, keep growing. Yesterday's bread's no good. We've got to get fresh bread uh, uh, for today. Last week, we talked about Paul and Judaism. Paul, uh, we read the story from Acts chapter 19. Paul, who was called Saul, who wrote the book of Romans, he was a Pharisee. He was a policeman. Uh, I mean, not officially a policeman. He patrolled the boundaries of Judaism. And Christianity, it was called the way, not Christians, as we discovered. Just the followers of Jesus, the way, the way of life, a way of being, a better way of being. Uh, Paul didn't like them because they were corrupting what he believed to be the traditions of his fathers. He wanted to keep traditional Judaism in place. He wasn't interested in fresh manner. He was a legalist. He wanted to wipe out this new development, therefore. But we discovered uh, how, um, in the famous story about how he's riding a horse to arrest some followers of the way and persecute them because he believes they're so bad for Israel. He gets knocked off his horse, blinded, and he hears the voice of Jesus. Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? And his life's turned round because he realizes that he's always lived to see a Messiah come, but he thought the Messiah, the liberator of Israel, would be this conquering hero. And it turns out the Messiah of Israel is someone who dies on a cross and is a suffering servant rather than a conquering warlike hero. It turns his thinking upside down. So we discovered last week how Paul, he doesn't abandon Judaism, he comes to see it differently. In fact, we learn um, how if you read the Acts of the Apostles, the story of Paul, really, in many ways, you can see how he, he, on having this fantastic experience, he spends the next 14 years off the map, basically. He's off-grid. And what he's doing, we know little about him in that time, but he's off-grid, learning, thinking, chewing it through. And then 14 years later, he re-emerges as this dynamic individual who's determined to tell the whole world about what he's discovered. Today, we're going to look at, at uh, Paul and the empire, Paul and Rome. Because if Paul was a Jew, he's born in Tarsus in, in, uh, in Turkey, um, he was also a Roman citizen. Tarsus, as I said last week, was a university city. It's where the Stoics were based. It's where the Epicureans were based. He grew up on Homer, and he dieted on Aristotle. You know, Homer was his Old Testament, and Aristotle and his great uh, mentor, uh, Aristotle's great mentor, Plato, they were, they were his diet, his Old and New Testament. So he was thoroughly versed in uh, Greek mythology and Greek philosophy and Greek ways of thinking. 
And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first of all, a parent advisory uh, notice. There's going to be some explicit content to this uh, talk. Lucky job the kids got. Um, because you can't understand Paul unless you really grapple with what Rome was. And that's the problem, you see. We try to read a verse and we miss the wood for the trees. We're so focused on the trees, we don't see the wood. Hands up anybody who's ever been to Rome. You ever been to Rome? And you walk down the forum, yeah? And you've seen all the temples, yeah? So that would give you, yeah? And you've been to uh, the circus, well, it's, you know, the, the Circus Maximus, yeah? And all of that. Well, um, do, you, do you know, if you've never been to Rome, I know it's expensive, but if you ever had a weekend and you can get on an easy jet for about 45 quid if you book it up fast, it's really worth going because it's the best Bible study you'll ever do in your life. It will turn... It would turn all of this from a pile of words and you think, oh, is this relevant to me? To it is totally relevant to me. So what Paul is, is he's, um, he's a Jewish citizen. And uh, the, the rich read to us the first verses of the book of, Ro- of, the book of Romans. And in those, those first verses, Paul talks about two things. One we talked about last week. You see, he's been knocked off his horse. He thinks he's going to die. He's rescued. He's given life. He's given new hope. He's given new direction. He's given new manner. And his whole life is turned around by grace. He's lived by law, but he's come to understand that he misunderstood Judaism. The laws will never save you. Actually, all the laws do is remind you of how much you fail. And that's what Romans is about in one, in one level. And he realizes that thing. But he also, as I just said, realizes that Jesus, who he thought was a false messiah, is actually a real messiah who suffered and died Messiahs aren't supposed to do that. They're supposed to beat the Romans up badly. Um, And he's risen from the dead. And that's his 14 years of studying and thinking. And he comes out of this with a new view of the Roman Empire. And the words that Rich read to us, which you took as a Bible reading in a religious service, are actually some of the most politically charged words in the world. They don't ban the Bible in various cultures and countries for no reason at all. They ban the Bible simply because it's so explicitly a call to live another way. If you read those words again, and I suggest to you again that you read the little letter that Paul wrote to the Romans this week. If you read those first seven verses, they're filled with two statements, basically. Paul says... I'm an apostle, a follower of Jesus, called by grace. Grace to you Romans, grace to everyone, grace to the church in Rome. He uses the term grace three or four times in that little sentence or two. Because he's discovered it's all about law. It's all about grace, it's not about law. The law just makes you feel worse. Knowing the rules makes you feel worse than you did before you knew the rules. You were going wrong before you knew the rules. Now you know how messed up and screwed up your life is. That makes you feel bad. And he's discovered it's about grace. God loves us. Not for who we are. He loves us because he loves us. Not based on our performance. It's not some kind of meritocracy. He loves us just because he loves us. But the other thing those seven verses are about is this. Paul says, 
um, I am called to be an apostle. And he actually says in the first verse, I don't know if you caught it when Rich said it, he said, of Christ Jesus. You think, oh, that's odd, because normally they say Jesus Christ. But he said Christ Jesus. He's got muddled up. He's put his surname first. It's like saying Chalk Stephen instead of Stephen Chalk. Because we've assumed, haven't we, that Jesus Christ, Christ is Jesus' surname. You know, he came from a family of Christs. You know, <laughs> the Christs of Nazareth. They're a nice bunch. Mrs. Christ, Mr. Christ, and their little son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the Romanized form of the Hebrew Messiah. Christ, Messiah is the same word. It means liberator, the person who will set free. Now, it so happens that this letter is written to Rome in about the year 55. If you were a student of history, you'd know something big happened in 55. In 55, Claudius died and his adopted son, you probably remember that adopted children in Rome were more important than natural children. So, um, uh, so, for instance, Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. You know Julius Caesar, the one who got the whole thing going, who got stabbed in the back by Brutus? When he died, Augustus, who was his adopted son, became the leader of Rome. Augustus Caesar, as he became. After Augustus, um, after Augustus, uh, various people uh, argued and fought for this uh, great throne, and Claudius got it. But in 55, Nero, you've heard of him, who fiddled while Rome burnt, Claudius died, and Nero became the emperor. And both of these guys were oppressive. And there was this thing called the Pax Romana, have you heard of that? The Peace of Rome? But the peace of Rome was simply this. You pay the taxes and we look after you. That's what it was. That was the slogan. Tax and freedom, tax and freedom, tax and freedom. Does it sound kind of like more contemporary than that? Tax and freedom. You pay, we look after you. You don't pay, you're out. And that was what was called, uh, that was what was called civilization. And so Paul says, his opening words, I am Paul the apostle, the messenger of Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, the liberator Jesus. I march to a different drum. I've got a different story. This Roman story is killing you. It's putting the ordinary people down. It's finishing them off. I've come to show you a different way. And Rome is corrupt. It's corrupt through and through. Um, Paul had these three main themes. You remember from last week? There they are. I'll put them all out there because we've run out of time. Paul's main themes, not just in Romans, these are the main themes of his whole life. He believed there was one God now of all people, that God wasn't a Jewish God and that you didn't need to become Jewish or look Jewish or get circumcised or uh, attend Jewish festivals to be blessed by God. God was the God of the whole earth. Monotheism, it's called. God's interested in everyone. His plan is universal to include everyone. No one's excluded, which is why, if that screen wasn't there, that circle of inclusion of Oasis, that's why we have a circle of inclusion. We believe that God is the God of everyone. Everyone's in. No one's out. It's an idea that we didn't think up ourselves. Paul had this great idea as he followed Jesus. 
Therefore, there's one people. Every, the, the, the monotheism election and eschatology, by the way, they are from N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, and the, the one God, one people, one hope are from me. So I, it's my way of explaining what Tom Wright means, if you see what I mean. Uh, so one God, one people, everyone's in. One hope. Now, Paul, as we're discovering the remaining two weeks of this thing, uh, Rome wasn't what it should be, and Paul, that creates a problem. Because if you believe there's one God, and he loves everyone, and God's good, and you believe that he's chosen everyone, and no one's excluded, how on earth do you cope with the fact that life's so miserable for so many people? See, it's all really contemporary. How do we cope with the fact that people can't sleep in this city? We've got more people on the streets of this city this year than we had last year, and more people last year than we had the year before. It's out of control. There are families crammed in houses around here with damp running down the walls. There are families who can't feed themselves. We've got more and more people. We've got more and more people using the food bank who are in work. They're in work, but they still can't survive. That's why Tim's story of liberation for these workers, these cleaners, is so fantastic. So Paul knows that. He says, right, there's one God. There's one people. God is good. There's one people. He wants to bless all the people of the whole earth. And he knows this all orientates around Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the message that you serve and you lay down your life. And as you lay down your life, something extraordinary can happen and come about. But you've got a problem. And that's what uh, Tom Wright called eschatology. So Paul yearns. He says that the whole of history is on a journey and we're not where we should be, but God's going slowly doing this thing that he, that he wants to do. Um, we live in the now and there's a not yet. One day there'll be an end to poverty, but we fight for it now. One day there'll be an end to discrimination, but we fight for it now. Do you, do you see? That's what Paul believes, this one hope. So, we're going to look at Romans chapter 1. August 24th, AD 79. Who knows what happened on that day? That was one cataclysmic day in the life of the world. Anybody, can, can, anybody know? Uh, yeah, uh, Owen knows. Huh? The, the sack of Jerusalem. The sack of Jerusalem happened just before that, a few years before that. That was in 70. This is nine years later. Vesuvius exploded. Yeah. On, it was in the morning. The city of Pompeii was having breakfast. And Vesuvius exploded. And life in Pom the city of Pompeii came to a shuddering halt in moments. The whole city was covered in ash. And why is that such an important moment for the world? It was a terrible, tragic moment for the city of Pompeii and the uh, 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 city, the town next door called Herculaneum. Um, but um, it was an incredible moment because it froze in time Roman life. It froze in time Roman, li uh, Roman life. Here are some pictures. I don't know. Has anybody been to Pompeii? Yeah, it's an amazing thing to give to go to see it is there's um somebody he was it he was in bed can you see his belt still on so this is somebody who was in bed on that morning on august the 24th 
79, and that's it. You can go see these people. They look like they're made of stone, but it's because the ash fell over them. They were suffocated, and they were frozen. Well, uh, so there's just, there's lots of these. Here's someone else. He hadn't got up. That's him or her. There were dogs, and there there were people caught in all sorts of things they were doing. They died instantly, and they're, they're there. So it's Roman life, Pompeii was a very famous Roman city, as you know, and it's caught in an instant. It's frozen. We see it exactly as it is. This is a snapshot. It's better than an iPhone 6. It's a snapshot of life in Pompeii at that moment. So here's this. It's on the wall. See that? It's a penis. It's a phallic symbol. Around the city of Pompeii, let me tell you, tell you this. As it was uncovered, it lay under ash, you probably know this, for just over 1,500 years. And then in the 1600s, and the, towards the end of the 1600s, nobody, it was completely forgotten that Pompeii was there. Then somebody was digging around, and they found some coins. And they dug, dug some more, and there was a building. And then people began moving in, and there were people, and there were streets, and there were temples. It's like the forum in Rome, that, sit, that street that still exists. It's, it's, it's a whole town of it. It's just caught in this moment. But here's the thing. As they began to explore Pompeii, which is all just there. It's not like the Forum in Rome, which is basically flat almost. It's like a whole city that's actually there. There were phallic symbols everywhere. Here's another one. It's um, on the roadway. There's loads of these. They use them as like, you know, you get uh, on our streets, you know, uh, one-way signs and things like that. Honestly, these things are everywhere. These phallic symbols, just like that one, they're everywhere. And they're on buildings. There's loads of them all over Pompeii. It's quite extraordinary. And then they began to dig up some of the, uh, some of the art. So, let me tell you. Um, there was a god um, called Pan. And um, this is a picture of him. Have you heard of Pan. The god Pan is Roman god. This, they dug this up. This is Pan. This is Pan having sex with a nanny goat. Now, here's the thing. I'm just showing you some of the, um, you know, 12 rated things. Here is the thing. That most of the artwork that was taken over the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries from Pompeii. You can go see Pompeii and you walk round it. I've walked round it. But most of the artwork was taken away. And it was taken away because it was believed you couldn't possibly show it to 20th century people or 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th or 20th century people. And it was all put in, or much of it was put into what's called the National Museum of Naples. Napoli, do you know? Um, uh, um, Napoli is a great place to go. They've got an okay football team. And they've got this fantastic museum. And the museum in Naples, the National Museum in Naples, had a wing in it that no one was allowed into 
And guess when they first allowed the public into the wing of the National Museum of Naples that contains this? Was it in 1800, 1850, 1900, 1920, 1930? Was it after the Second World War? Turn to the person next to you and have a guess at when they let people into this museum to see this stuff. I'll tell you when it was. Any, any guesses? It was the year 2000. It wasn't until the turn of the millennium when people were first let into this wing of the National Gallery in Naples. And still today, you're only allowed in if you're over 18. Because it has the life of Pompeii in it. And the life of Pompeii is quite extraordinary. Now, this is uh, Pan. Pan had a son. You know I taught you last week a principle. If you don't, I don't know if you're ready for this next picture. I taught you last week. <laughs> I taught you last week, if you don't lose it, you use it. Do you know, in, in other words, if you've got a skill, if you play the piano, you've got to use it or you lose it. If you can uh, write, you've got to use it or you lose it. You either get better or you don't. Do you, do you know, if whatever we got in life, we have to use or we lose. So this is the father. And he had a son who was also um, a Roman god. Uh, uh, um, and uh, this is his picture from Pompeii. <laughs> See? Use it or lose it. <laughs> when you've got a father like that, this is what you turn out, out to be. And actually, he's one of the most, um, a, a funny term to use, decorated gods in Pompeii and in Roman life. And in Roman life. And the point was, you're supposed to be like your gods. And so, um, here's a, just one picture. I, I, um, there are many, many very explicit pictures. My, my task this morning isn't for, to, to show you some pornography. It's just that so you know what Paul's writing to. This is what he's writing to. This is what he's explaining. In, uh, in Pompeii, as in Rome... Sex was um, out of control. Sex governed the city. Pompeii and Rome were swimming in sex. They were in completely decadent cities. We still struggle to look at some of the images that those cities produced. Um, there's a place called the Lupinara. This is the Lupinara. It's in Pompeii. And... Um, uh, they've actually just done it up, as you can see. They've um, re-established the second floor. And the Lupinara um, was the biggest brothel in Pompeii. They know now, it's only a small town, Pompeii, really, there were 47 other brothels. There were a whole lot of taverns and endless bathhouses. And all of these places uh, were used uh, for sex. 
uh, sex took place, there were prostitutes, lots of prostitutes, hundreds, thousands. Both women and men were prostitutes. Both women and men were customers. Male prostitutes served both female and male customers. Uh, male prostitutes were most common, but there were lots of women prostitutes. Uh, 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 there were lots of women customers to these uh, prostitutes as well. The gladiators of the day were like our football stars. You know that, don't you? But they were all slaves. And, and well-to-do women enjoyed sex with gladiators. So the gladiators would, would make most, as much of their salary or their living from sleeping with, having sex with, the upper-class women in Pompeii or Rome as, as they would from uh, their fights. But... Um, all of the prostitutes were um, slaves or former slaves. People who, there were groups of people who had no rights in the Roman Empire. Do you know who they were? They were slaves, former slaves, gladiators, or actors. Actors were considered to have no rights at all in, in Rome. And all of these people took to sex. And this, you can go walk round, and some of the images we've seen come from this building. You can walk round this and see it. Justin Martyr, have you heard of him? His, there's his dates. Um, he lived in, uh, just a little bit later. We see that almost, uh, we see that almost all so exposed, not only the girls, but also the males, are brought up into prostitution. He's talking about life in Rome, not in Pompeii. Uh, Pompeii. And anyone who uses such persons, besides the godless and the infamous and the impure intercourse that they're having, may possibly be having intercourse with his own child or relative or brother. And there are some who prostitute even their own children and wives, and some who are openly mutilated for the purpose of sodomy. And they refer to these mysteries, uh, they refer all these mysteries to the mother of gods. The mother of gods was this lady, Sibelia, have you heard of Sibelia? Mother Earth, do you know you've heard of Mother Earth? The mother of all gods. And Sibelia had a, um, you see her statues everywhere. This is one in Milan. If you ever go to Milan, there's Sibelia in Milan. It's um, from uh, Roman times there. Sibelia had a love interest, a boyfriend, and this is him. He was called um, uh, Attis. And Attis was, was betrothed to uh, uh, Sibelia, and Attis's father wanted this. This is mythology. This is Greek Roman mythology. Wanted um, Attis to marry someone else. So uh, Attis's father introduced him to someone else. Famous story. Um, Sibelia dominated life in Rome. She was the goddess of all goddesses. And uh, Sibelia was upset about being jilted in this way, so she pitched up at the wedding. She appeared miraculously, and she drove uh, Attis into a drunken kind of trance, and she forced him to castrate himself. And she became the goddess, the, f the, the imperial god of the city of Rome. And Paul's writing to this. And every April, you know, um, uh, uh, April is kind of the crops are growing, etc. The people worshipped um, worshipped her, and the men would turn up, 
And uh, they would all get into this drunken thing. And uh, they developed, the Romans had developed quite a lot of um, uh, uh, um, recreational drugs drugs, you know, through herbs and plants. And they get themselves, there's lots of history about this, they get themselves into this frenzy, and then um, they would be made to castrate themselves. And then they'd become prostitutes, and then other men would come and use them, and abuse them even further. So this, without going further into it, was life in Rome. Paul writes at the end of this chapter, that we've just read. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. All um, Greek gods also could appear as as a bird, or an animal, or a reptile. In fact, they all had uh, their equivalents. And if I could see all this in my notes, and I can't see it all in my notes, I'd, um, I'd tell you, uh, uh, some, some of them, um, I'll be able to find it when I don't need it. So um, I'll throw it on the floor as it is. Oh, there you are. Zeus could also appear as an eagle or a wolf. Poseidon, or Neptune as he was called by the Romans. Poseidon was his Greek name. Neptune was his Roman name. He could appear as a dolphin or a horse or a bull. Or Mars, the god Mars, could appear as a snake, a vulture, or an owl, or a woodpecker. And uh, there were these orgies that were just fueled by uh, this stuff. So, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones. They were sleeping with these gladiators. They were, as the inscription on the wall, three in a bed or four in a bed, etc., etc. The whole city was sex mad. And Pompeii was just a little version of what Rome was. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men because of the cult of uh, Sabalia. Because men had sex with these other men who'd been castrated. Um, and much more beside. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. Loads of them ended up, because of their drunken orgies, castrated dead, infected, diseased. So, Paul says, they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, uh, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous uh, decree that those who do such things deserve death, they get death. It's the outworking of the way they've been living. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It turns out that those people at the end of chapter 1, which is often held out to be a chapter that is against anybody who's LGBT, it turns out that this is the story. And it turns out that when the narrative in the church, the churches of the world, was first spun against LGBT people, no one had actually excavated Pompeii. We didn't know. And it turns out that even when we did know, we shut the national 
Museum of Naples because we didn't want anyone to know. This is what Paul's writing to. The tragedy is that a church not understanding the depth of these words and the situation that Paul was writing to about the magnificent new life that Christ could bring and the new hope and the new way of being, not understood these verses have been used to exclude, they've been used to, um, uh, they've been used to harm, they've been used to reject LGB and transgender people. I'm glad that our church is very, very different from that. But sometimes you will hear that it's because we're somehow kind of liberal and not looking at the Bible. I put it to you that there's not another church in Britain that just looked at this kind of stuff this morning at this kind of depth. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and it's because of our vacuousness and of looking at the trees, not the wood, that we don't see what this is about. All of these people who were caught into prostitution, they were slaves, they were former slaves, they were gladiators, they'd been hauled from around the um, empire. There were women caught in this. There were women, freed women that were caught up in it. And all of this was misery. All of this was degradation. All of this was hopelessness and despair. I once sat next to the chief rabbi, not the one now, but um, Jonathan Sachs, do you know the chief rabbi? I sat with Jonathan at a conference, and I asked him about the term God's wrath. And he laughed, and he said, it's a strange thing, he said. Christians, they write lots of books about God's wrath and God's anger, but they never ask us, the Jewish people, whose book it actually is and whose language it actually is. He said, the term God's anger can be best translated God's anguish. And then he said to me, of course you'd understand that. Because God is the father of all humanity. And any parent has anguish at the waywardness of their children. Anguish and tears, but never wrath. I'm going to skip a bit because um, we're going to look at this. And then we're going to finish in a minute. But I didn't want to end there. What Paul's doing is he's telling a new story. He's saying to everybody caught in this lifestyle or any lifestyle, and let's face it, this stuff is rampant in London and every city now. It's rampant in the clubbing scene. It's rampant, you know, when uh, in the kind of chemsex world, isn't it? It's rampant in Vauxhall. It's rampant in our city. It's not just homosexual people. It's all people who get caught up in a lifestyle that's actually destroying them. By the way, I want to say, did you notice that the term homosexual isn't men mentioned in any of that? It's a really funny thing. We've read it all in. It's not there. Paul's writing to people who mess their lives up sexually. They might be homosexual. They might be, uh, as we would call it nowadays, and they might be straight. All of us can get into a scene that's not good. Here's a book. What Paul's saying is our lives are an open book. And he's saying that the real story of our lives is about the stuff, not just the stuff that happens to us, 
but it's about our inner story. What is our inner story? Because that's what Romans is about. Paul was out to kill the Christians, and his inner story was completely changed. And he calls us to a new inner story. What is an inner story? Our inner story is the monologue that runs inside your head. You know when you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and there's that little voice that says, you're not going out looking like that, are you? That little voice that says, get a haircut. You, oh, honestly, put some makeup on. You're too fat, you're too short, you're too small. That little inner voice that when you walk into a room at work, everyone stops talking and you think, and the little voice says, they were all talking about you. You know, they're talking, you... That's the inner monologue. You've got a little voice, haven't you, going round in your head. Your inner story and your inner monologue is unseen by everyone else. It's often unrecognized by you. It's normally untold. But this little inner monologue is built up. It's the way you see the world, and it's the world you fit into, and it's the world you inhabit, and it's the world you inherit. Your little inner story is what it means and defines to be you. So, we all think we have the same inner story. I was on a train. I was going to speak at the um, Labour Party conference uh, when it was on, you know, just before Christmas or whenever it was, October. And I got on this train from London on a Sunday night and I thought, I would have been here and I thought, I'm going to sit down with a coffee and I'm going to just relax all the way to Liverpool, which is where it was. This train was packed with people, absolutely crammed. You know, it was unbelievable. But I got a seat and I was sat next to this woman by a table. And she's looking at me, and I'm looking at her, and we get talking. And then this angry guy gets stuck in the corridor. Do you know as people get stuck in the corridor? And he's swearing. He's in his 50s. He's swearing. He's cursing. And he looks down at this woman, and he says, Why am I stuck on this effing, effing train? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And she looks up at him, and I look up at him, and uh, he's cursing. And then he fights his way down the uh, aisle, and he moves on. About five minutes later, another woman kind of turns up and she stands there and she looks down at this woman next to me and the woman looks up at her and I look up at her and we all say hello and the woman who's standing says, oh, this train's crammed, isn't it? She said, I was expecting to get on and get a seat and the woman in front of me says, yes, so was I. It's really crammed. Anyway, they get talking and it turns out they're both grandmothers and before five minutes is up, they've got out their iPhones and they're swapping pictures of their grandchildren. Ooh, look at him oh yeah he's nearly what he can walk you know he can walk early he can walk early oh mine can talk all of that kind of stuff it's all going on and then the woman who sat down the 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 aisle is clearing a bit the woman who sat down says to the woman who's standing I'm going to get a coffee actually now it's cleared shall I get one for you and the woman who's standing says oh yeah I'd love to have a coffee I got a coffee out of it too it was really good so oh so we all got coffees and then the woman who's sitting says to the woman who's standing while I'm going to get the coffee why don't you just sit in my place so the woman who's sitting carries on and I'm a granddad so we carry on the conversation about oh grandchildren yeah Mike more faster than yours can you know and that's kind of that so we do that and then this other woman who had the seat now gets back but there's still no seat so she says to the woman sat there she said here's your coffee she says, don't get up, I'll just stand. So she says, I'm getting off at the next stop. It was Milton Keynes or something like that. It was, you know, 40 minutes away. She said, I'm getting off. I'm getting off then, so why don't you sit there? So the woman sits there. The woman who originally had the seat has bought her a coffee and is now standing while she sits. 
And then at Milton Keynes or wherever it was, this, uh, this first woman gets off. And I realized, you see, why did it happen that way? Because both the angry man and that lady had a different monologue in their head. And the angry man's monologue made, he said, well, it's always like this. And his monologue made him react and respond in a certain way, and he got what he was looking for. And this lady reacted and responded in a different way, and she got what she was looking for. Do you, do you see what I mean? Our inner story defines us. And Paul's inner story had been a person persecuting everyone. He wanted to wipe out everyone, but now his story is of love for everyone, and he sees these people uh, uh, messed up in their lives, and he sees how the Roman law has messed people up, and he wants the best for everyone. His inner story is being changed. Your inner story determines what you think, what you feel, and what you do. Your inner story convinces you of what sort of person you are. Your inner story tells you what you can and cannot achieve in life. Your inner story is with you and it's controlling you when you're awake or when you're asleep. Your inner story controls your life but it can also transform your life. And if we're actually going to move on, we've got to deal with that inner monologue in our head and get it changed. We've got to deal with that. Inner stories don't have to be bad to get better. Our story can move on. It can be better. It can be better. But here's the thing. You are your inner storyteller. You tell yourself that inner story that controls your life. And this is what Romans is about. Through the work of God's spirit, you can edit and change your inner story. But first, you have to acknowledge it. You can edit and change your inner story, but first you have to acknowledge it to move on. That's what Paul is saying to everyone to be continued next week. Thanks a lot. I'm sorry I took so long. (laughs) 